Welcome to episode 15 of Climactic, the voice of the people on climate change. Yes, hello Mark, and welcome listeners to this week's show, an interview where you chat with Climate for Change's Gabby Ma. Yeah, I do. Thank you, Rich. Gabby got introduced to me by Ollie Morrice, who was on a previous episode of the show, episode number eight, which is also a really good one to check out. So we, we talk a little bit about what it's like to, to volunteer with Climate for Change. But also, this is a prime example of the type of interview I wanted to do right at the start of the show, which is just a chat with a normal, everyday person like you and me about how we grapple with the realities of living in this the time of climate change. Yes, and anybody willing to know a little bit more about climate for change, just go back to the Ollie Morris interview and you'll learn a bit more there. So before we launch into the show, Mark, uh, we have had some positive feedback on the sound of your voice. So what's the secret, mate? Have you got a new microphone? No, no new microphone and no testosterone injections either. <laughs> uh, voice training? Me, 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 me. How now, brown cow? No. No, no uh, no training. Okay, I'll give up. How did you achieve the new improved Mark sound? Well, it was actually a suggestion from producer of the show, Caleb Fidicaro. He'd been binge-watching a certain travel show called No Reservations, in which the host, unfortunately recently and dearly departed, Anthony Bourdain, because he could only record in a hotel room with a lot of inherent noise, he would go ahead and dive under a blanket with his microphone and do the recordings there. So that's what I'm doing, folks. I'm recording this while under my own little blanket fort. Taking a bullet for the team. Well done. <laughs> Thank you, Caleb, for your suggestion. It's excellent. Okay, we'll be back after the interview for a quick chat, but here's Mark talking with the amazing Gabby Mark. We're back in the donkey wheelhouse in the vault. It's Friday the 13th, which are you worried about that at all, Gabby? No. Nope. <laughs> not, not a superstitious person? No. Nope. Then we're fine. So I'm Gabby. I am 26, and I was born in Richmond, and I still live in Richmond. Uh, no, Ollie, and so that's how I come to be sitting here with you. In all the, the makings of a great story. Because <laughs> of the Richmond thing? Yeah. 26, born in Richmond, grew up in Richmond. I mean, Richmond's changed a lot. We can just talk about Richmond for... Yeah, absolutely. Richmond over the last quarter century. <laughs> nah, no, I'm good, eh? You can, you can tell me about it, but you'd be explaining rather than yeah, telling. No you, could, you guys are good? I've we, heard that. We've just had this, actually, it could relate to climate change. We just had this 26 years of being a terrible team, and then in the space of a year, became the best team in the league. Did Richmond suddenly, like, gain a lot in elevation, and now you guys are all, like, you'd, like Kenyans just train at no, high elevation? No. Not at all. They just did a whole lot of mindfulness and vulnerability training. Really? Yeah. Are you making that up? No, it's serious. AFL players did mindfulness yeah, training and yeah, like emotional vulnerability. Uh huh. Are you guys the team with Dusty? Yes. 
Because he's a very emotionally <laughs> vulnerable kind of guy. I know, but he hasn't tried to stab anyone with chopsticks for a while, so I feel good, like there's been some serious improvements. Very but good. I think, you know, if we were looking at climate change and the relationship, if you could change some people's minds that quickly in a year because they're that motivated towards football, mm. how could you use that in another area of your life? So it could be related, the Richmond Tigers and climate change. Could be. <laughs> Well, like if like ice hockey in the states now is getting quite serious, oh, Canada and the U.S. Are getting quite serious about climate change because the yeah. threat it poses to their sport. So yeah. they're all transitioning to electric zambonis to like zambonis. Cool. It's the big machines that grade the ice on the uh, ice rinks. Yeah, and they've been like you know diesel forever, and they're like now we need to go electric with these because nice. we can't be contributing to the thing that's melting our ponds earlier yes. and earlier. Whereabouts were you born in Richmond or whereabouts did you grow up? Uh, right on the border between Kew and Richmond. Okay. Which is so the posh end? Well, it is now. Yeah, yeah. When we moved there, a whole lot of factories used to exist along the river. When I was born, a lot of the factories had closed, apart from the beer factory, which is important. People, Richmond used to be a slum for people who worked in the factories. Mm-hmm. So um, It's hard to believe now. But yeah. But yeah, if you still wander around from morning and stuff today, you're like, oh, wow, there's, yeah. this is industrial. Yeah, absolutely. Since I've lived there, it's changed drastically from being that kind of slum to being a very kind of yuppie feel <laughs> in the nicest the possible cafes. sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But I think growing up next to the river had a big impact on me, which one of the reasons why I love it. And actually, mm-hmm. the Kew side represents more of that, I guess, because perhaps being a little bit richer, they've managed to maintain the natural yeah, element. Yeah, more trees, yeah. more greenery. Like yeah. Actually, there's like a river edge, whereas in between mm-hmm. it's just like... Factory. Yeah. Apartment river. That's right. Well, you had to have like the, the loading docks out to the boats and stuff. They're like, there was nothing kept. Like the river was just yeah. a roadway. Yeah. We actually used to swim in the river with a friend of mine. <laughs> I'm not sure how our parents ever let us do that, but it did happen. Still here. I think I have a strong immune system to, I mean, but it was probably worse when we were there when probably, we were young. Yeah. Yeah. You went to normal public school, like normal kind of childhood? No, I went to a Steiner school, oh, okay. which is the same school that Ollie went to. Well, the same curriculum that Ollie went to. I went to a school in Abbotsford, mm-hmm. and the curriculum of a Steiner school, it's, it's got a bit of a cultish reputation. Yeah, I don't know anything about it, but from the perspective of someone who's gone there, I don't know what it's like. Well, Rudolf Steiner was a German philosopher, mm-hmm. and he designed this curriculum. And his perception was that you had to educate children according to the stage of development that their brain was at. Mm-hmm. And also, you had to develop the whole person, like their artistic, their intellectual, their scientific, their emotional, their musical, their spiritual. Oh, really? There's that element as well? It's very pagan, the spiritual element. It's very, uh, you know, thanking the earth that sustains you. Not at all in a kind of, there's no structured spirituality. Like it's not Buddhist or it's not Catholic or anything like that. It's, It's just a general appreciation for the gift of being alive. Yeah. How, how was that experience for you going to that school? I loved it. Yeah, I think it formed a lot of my worldview. It's problematic because it's quite expensive to go there, and so mm-hmm. it's a very white – in Australia, it's very white. Yeah. In there. And also it's probably because of that frame of reference, it's quite – maybe quite narrow in terms of the, the broader world. So I love being there, but when I left, it felt a bit like – just growing up having this sense that everyone had my best interests at heart and that the world was a really loving place. And I think leaving 
you know, maybe some people who go to public schools where things are maybe a little bit more challenging would come out with a bit more of a realistic sense of the world. That was interesting to leave school and realise how different the worlds were, the world of my school and the rest of the world. I was a really angsty teenager and I just had it all, you know, I was really kind of devastated about it in a very teenager emotional way with not a lot of information. Pandas. Pandas? Polar bears. Yeah. No, no, no. Nothing. No, Eucalypts. Eucalypt forests and the Murray River and... So you were a smarter teenager than most, I think. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so what was next? I saved up and went overseas and I went to Eastern Europe for maybe two months and then I went to the east coast of Africa for about two months. And I did that because I had the intention of going to study international development, which I think was driven by the fact that I'd always felt this responsibility for the world in the sense of, you know, feeling like I had a lot of privilege and therefore a lot of responsibility to do something with it. Where did that come from, your sense of awareness of your privilege? I don't really know where it came from. I think it's probably tied up with a bit of white guilt. I don't know, I always felt like I had problems, the problems of the world presented to me. I was trying to avoid the medical profession or the medical world or the health world at all costs, and then I ended up as a Pilates teacher. So (laughs) well-being came through in the end. (laughs) And I also worked in a hospital doing food service. Once again, good escape. I know. Yeah, Dad got me that job. Yeah. Thanks, Dad. (laughs) It was a palliative care hospital, so everyone there was on the way out. That was definitely an interesting experience. So that world-famous, high-standard, hot cuisine, they serve at hospitals. We've got you to thank. Uh, Yep. Part of that machine. Yeah. It was uh, definitely an insight into um, how the people who probably need the healthiest food get the opposite. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Obviously, that's a complicated issue. A lot of them can't eat anyway, but... Yeah, no, it's yeah. a whole kettle of fish, but you've seen behind that curtain there and hospitality. Yeah. It's the kind of thing that if you've never worked in it before and thought about it, you'd be, you couldn't tell your friends about it without them being shocked. Yeah. Just, I think it's really good to have experiences like that where you actually get to see how the sausage is made. Mm. <laughs> the bad pun of the day. So how long were you away on your, your OE, your overseas mm. experience? It's probably about five months altogether. So, so what, was the, what was the plan for when you got back? So when I was in East Africa, I was in Tanzania, and I worked in a school. I kind of planned that to see if I liked international development. Uh, lots of problems, complex, but still really interesting. And so I came back and started international development and at La Trobe. Mm-hmm. And the entire course is about how most development is really bad and you probably shouldn't do it. Really? Yeah. All the problems about people from other cultures impacting another culture, the problems about power discrepancy between actors. There's a lot of post-colonial concerns coming in where yes. you don't want to go in as... Yeah. You already said white guilt, so I can say, you know, white, <laughs> uh, the whole white savior thing. Yeah, exactly. So I spent... I did a year full-time and then I actually stopped because I was like, well, there's not much... If, if everything I'm learning is about how problematic development is, then is this really what I want to do. Yeah, that's where you can make the most impact with your efforts. Yeah. So I stopped, thought about it for a year, and then went back. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. And then did you carry on to the end of, or? I did, yeah. Well done. Yeah. So I guess just, I think that year was a moment of 
having a lot of my projections exposed to me and then having to rethink whether if I don't have those projections anymore, is this really what I want to do or was I do, you know, why would I do it? Am I doing it for reasons that are sound? I went back and focused on creative writing and conflict resolution. <laughs> How do those two go to I know. Creative writing, I guess, as a way of expressing mm-hmm. all the things that I was learning and conflict resolution because it seemed to me something that was not imposing, that was about maybe enabling people to fix their own issues in the way that suited them mm-hmm. rather than bringing in a, a way of fixing problems, mm-hmm. you know, to be more of a facilitator rather than a, an actor. Yeah, like the philosophy of international <laughs> development, but like, you know, like conflict resolution, that's kind of like the sharp end of the stick there. I mean, like there's a lot of stuff potentially going into conflicts in these mm-hmm. countries that are being developed, talking tribal differences and it's completely different cultures to our own. Doesn't that feel a bit like if you're like the mediator there, like coming in from this outside perspective, doesn't that feel a little like imposing as well? Yeah, and I don't think you can ever not have an impact, mm-hmm. which is what, I, like, in, again, in environment, as a human, you can't not create carbon or mm-hmm. have an impact in some way. But I think it's understanding that your impact will have both negative and positive consequences that are out of your control. So you finished up with your international development degree, and then what was the next thought? Uh, so I studied the last couple of years. I studied international development alongside studying Pilates. Well, where did the where did the Pilates come in? Mm. Well, I used to play semi professional basketball, and I injured my knee when I was twenty one. I'm sorry. That's okay. It was a gift. <laughs> And so I started doing Pilates to rehab that and I have, well, I had an amazing teacher. I have an amazing teacher who taught me how to do Pilates and then taught me how to teach Pilates. And now I have a great group of people who are involved in the Pilates world. I think that's been a really influential part of my life because Pilates, although you might see it from the outside and think it's, it can seem a bit like uh, bums and abs, once you get into it, it's really about habits you know, for instance, Pilates is about training habits about the way you move. But I now use that in all areas of my life about how you think, how you respond to things. So I feel like Joseph Pilates, who's the guy who designed Pilates. Oh, Joe. Joe. Joe exactly. Pilates. And a lot of people now call him Joe very affectionately. Oh. Yeah. Actually very similar to Rudolf Steiner. Mm-hmm. That you had to, if, you, if you're doing exercise, it had to involve your mind or it was not really worth doing. So that really, yeah, it sort of takes us through to sort of where you're at now with everything not climate related. It's, it's kind of, I think it's good in these kind of things if you're going to be talking about this big old topic and especially with the goal of the podcast being like really relatable motivation for people is like getting a sense for, for who you are. So the reason why you're on the show, Gabby, is, is I got introduced to you through Ollie. And Ollie had a, a great episode here, but he's, you know, he's, he's a communicator and he does a great job for, for climate for change. I think he's going to be in that kind of role going forward for many years. Mm. Glad I know him now. Of course, you knew him as a kid. Well, which is even better. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he said you'd be a really good person to speak to because you did something pretty incredible for climate for change. Climate for Change runs almost fully off donations. So they ran their annual crowdfunder in April. The aim was to raise 165k wow. in six weeks. 
which would be um, two thirds of the um, of the amount that the organization needs to survive for another year mm-hmm. and to expand, not just to survive. So it's pretty hesitant at first to get involved. I haven't done any fundraising before, but then I just thought, well, I may as well give it a crack. A friend of mine's parents had lived without plastic for a year, talked to them all the time and was super inspired by them and just had this thought in the back of my head that I'd like to try that and just hadn't really had the impetus to do it. And so I thought one way to make me really accountable to living waste-free and help Climate for Change would be to tie them together and do a waste-free challenge for the whole of the crowdfunder. So that's what I did, six weeks waste-free. Waste, so not just plastic-free, but all waste, except what could go on my worm farm. It's a good exception. Yes. Because otherwise your worms would have starved. Yeah, they would have, and I wouldn't have eaten any vegetables in that time, which would be terrible. What was the timeline like from having the idea, pitching the idea to Climate for Change, them saying yes to you starting to do it? Like, how much time did you have to get ready to do this? Oh, well, I didn't pitch it to anyone. They, it was up, it's up to people who fundraise to do whatever they like. Okay. So well, you, you probably have to be a little bit careful about some things, but I did, they, they didn't have to give me permission or anything. Just I think it was a week since I decided to do it to starting it. Okay, so so they're running a, a fundraising campaign, kind of like how they're uh, last year. There's like a big refugee fundraising campaign where yes. you go on like a the diet a refugee would eat for, exactly. for three weeks or four weeks or whatever. Like yeah, nothing. Yeah, pretty much. And that was the way you were going to be raising. So you had to go out and find donors to to yes. pledge to you to do this. Yes, I understand. But there was a hundred other, a hundred and twenty, I think, people fundraising and all doing different. Wow. Things. And some people not even doing a challenge, but just being, you know, to their friends and family. This is the group I work for. They're great. You should probably give us money. (laughs) Fair enough. So you had a week from deciding to do this to when you started doing it. Yeah. What was that week like when you were getting ready to do this? Well, I had this feeling that I was going to be living a bit like a monk Mm -hmm. or a nun, maybe. Think about it. They're, they don't produce much waste. I can't think of many other people that don't produce waste. Yeah, and also just that there was going to be no salt in your chips, mm-hmm. no uh, juice, you know, like no nudie juice. Lots of the kind of delicious processed things that we live on were just not available for me because they're all come in a package. Because that all sounds so terrible to me. And now hoping you're going to tell me. But then I found that there's this place you can go to <laughs> to take nudie juice right out of the vat. And then I, could, I found this silo full of salt and vinegar chips. Look, I know. I'm sorry. Didn't happen? No. Okay. So yeah. what's what's the best way to hear how the six weeks went then? Well, so probably the first week is the best yeah. example of the whole thing. So I on Monday, I... Went to a Whole Foods shop. Smith Street has three Whole Foods shops, which mm-hmm. if you think about going waste-free or you do plastic-free July. Because the Friends of the Earth bulk food store and cafe. Yeah. What are the other two? Uh, the organic Whole Foods and Grocer, mm-hmm. which is just across the road from Friends of the Earth. And then just down the road, there's the Source bulk foods. So It's the highest concentration of health food stores in the city, I and they're know. all right next to each other. Yes, they are. So you went into the bulk food shops and stocked up on Monday? I did. I stocked up on kidney beans and black beans and lentils. <laughs> you had all your, like, just recycled jars and stuff? Or? No, I had paper bags. Oh, wow. But they can go in the worm farm. Yes. Yeah. So I try to reuse them a couple of times. Once you go, I guess the thing is walking in, it's quite it's quite scary. And you, uh, I was like, oh, I'm such a fraud. Look at everyone else in here. <laughs> Go in, fill up with all the things you want, and really surprised at all the things you can get, like nori sheets. 
or to, those ones? Uh, like to make sushi, the the seaweed that goes oh, around Nori. sushi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nori, yeah. Uh, corn chips. Really? Yeah. Yes. Not salt and vinegar chips, but corn chips. Okay. Well, you can add your own salt and just ask salt yeah, and vinegar. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Should you do that? <laughs> well, funny, because for the first week I had the most insane cravings for salt. And I just thought, isn't it bizarre that as soon as I cut out processed food, because you can't have processed food, then the level of salt that my body is getting is massively reduced and it just shows how much salt there must be in my diet. Yeah. yeah. And I don't, I didn't even add, I don't, I mean, um, don't cook extremely healthy or clean or anything like that, but I don't add a lot of salt myself. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Salt. so it wasn't a dietary challenge, though. You just couldn't eat processed foods because you can't buy them in a way yeah. that doesn't produce waste. Yeah. Well, like, if you think about as soon as you add two things together yeah, or process it from its original form, then you're going to need to package it. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I, I don't see why you couldn't have, like, a bin of Oreos loose at like a bulk food store. You know, you absolutely could. Yeah. Yeah. But, but they'd have to buy them in a packet pretty much. Well, I think the other thing is that everything comes in a packet at some point. It's just that it comes in a big packet to a store and rather than being separated into lots of little packets. Mm-hmm. So there is, like, there is always going to be plastic packaging. Mm-hmm. It's just going to be a lot less if, we if more people buy whole foods. Yeah. And, you know, there could definitely be a big bin full of Oreos there just needs to be like a health food, a whole foods shop for people who are not into chickpeas, <laughs> and then the Oreos would fly. But at the moment, I think Whole Foods is generally all about healthy. Yeah, you know, there's kind of they've teamed up with that organic, healthy. Yeah, because I've been eating bulk foods my whole life. I just realised because yeah, because you go into the dairy and you like the pick and mix lollies. <laughs> exact same, right? Totally, exactly the same. You went on your shopping spree on Monday, and yeah. then so you're craving salt in your chips, the, the salt realization, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And then, then how did the rest of that week go? Uh, well, everything was fine except for the legumes because mm-hmm. I soaked them overnight, I soaked them for another day, I cooked them in a pressure cooker, whatever else you're supposed to do, I did it all. Probably not correctly because the, then the chickpeas were still hard. I think probably the problem is that my pressure cooker is quite old. And uh, also my house is very small. It's a Richmond Terrace built for like when people were really short and you have to reach down to <laughs> get to the door handle. And so whenever I use the steam cooker, there's no fan above the oven. Okay. And so it just fills the house with steam. It's a very little house. And I think I, I, I think maybe that's the reason why I cooked up for half an hour because I just felt so guilty that the walls were like streaming with uh, steam. Being thought, this is probably as well, is, yeah, exactly. Not good for your hunger. Yeah. This is probably not good for the overall health of this rental property, so I better not. quit steaming my lentils. Come <laughs> on, steam clean. Why does everything here smell like beans? I know. It's just in the wall. Do you know what it made me realize, though? Just how, like, the waste problem exists because we've gotten so good at making life convenient. Mm-hmm. And we've done that because life is really hard without those things. Like, if you have to pick your beans and soak them and eat them, no wonder you have people in that era whose lives were devoted to providing food for the other rest the rest of the community because it takes a long time and a lot of work that being said it takes some skills and once you have those skills it's probably a lot easier and you've made the space in your life for it Mm. because it's really hard trying to introduce a whole bunch of new routines and habits which you with your Pilates background realize that habits take a long time Mm. to form and discipline to form and here you are all of a sudden trying to go from 
this modern, super convenient, you're right, easy life. Yes. To, yeah, like a 1950s mm. level of like, yeah, you, you needed a better pressure cooker as well. Yes. It should not be steaming. <laughs> it shouldn't? No. Okay. Not at all. I need a better, yeah. <laughs> not be the least steaming at all. It should, oh, okay. So it's supposed to keep the steam in. Yeah. Yeah. That's the pressure. Yeah, mine's definitely not working. No. Okay, good. Good to know. That's why my beans didn't work. I thought it was me. No, no, no. <laughs> like, you're, you're, your pressure cooker would be perfect for steaming broccoli. Okay. Not for doing beans. Yeah, okay, good. Like it's, it's the steamer now. Yeah. Almost Correct. anything is good for steaming broccoli, right? Like yeah, you could much. steam broccoli in a kettle yeah. and that would be fine. You do it in the shower. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Easy. Well, that's great to know. I feel like I've really gained something useful. It's <laughs> <Some> useful information. <laughs> so you did this for six weeks. Yes. And then you stopped? No. That challenge finished at the end of May. So now it's what? Midway through July. Mm-hmm. Last week, I decided that my diet was struggling because I'm mostly vegetarian and I just wasn't eating legumes because I'd look at the, t- the jar that I have in my pantry and just like feel this sense of failure, <laughs> which now I understand and I'm going to rectify. But I made the decision that I would buy tinned beans. My rules, I guess, for myself are I'm happy with tins of beans, some cartons of milk and some cheese. And that came from Existential Monday, that decision. So the cheese is going to have to come in plastic, right? Like yeah. you haven't found any way to... I have. I have found a way. You can Ooh. get it Victoria Market, for instance, and uh, Leo's in Q. You can get them. You can go and they can cut you cut it from the wheel. Excellent. Yes. There you go. And that's just way classier than a big block of... Mm. Or, or oh, I get shredded cheese. Oh, I'm no. Glad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's no. terrible. The show is for me. It's to help me. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm, I'm the problem case yes. here. So I went to have dinner at a restaurant, and I was sitting on the bar where I could see into the kitchen. And in the hour and a half that I sat there, they filled up, you know, two bins just in front of me of food scraps and plastic and all these things all mixed together, a whole lot that was recyclable, a whole lot that was compost- compostable, and a whole lot that was just straight-up landfill. And I thought... All the waste that I've not made in six weeks is, in the in the sense of the world of waste, irrelevant. Actually having an impact in the physical world, it was irrelevant. And it wouldn't be irrelevant if everyone in the world did it, mm-hmm. but they don't. So what I decided was rather than busting myself to get to Victoria Market on the tram to buy cheese, I'm just going to allow myself to buy some cheese that's wrapped in glad wrap because my energy that I would spend doing that, it's not a good use of my energy mm-hmm. in comparison to walking around to the little deli around the corner from my house, buying some cheese, and then using that the energy to, I don't know, I haven't really decided yet, but maybe work in the broader scheme of composting in the hospitality industry or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's just a convenience thing, right? Mm, like if you could buy cheese as conveniently without the plastic, you would. Absolutely. And probably everybody would. How did it go in the end, the fundraising campaign? Great. So my target was three grand and I raised four. Wow. Yeah. I thought, you know, raising three grand in six weeks, I thought that would be pretty ambitious. Well, I was going to go for five and then I just, I feel like over the course of my life, I've learned that I'm a little bit of a... You've been told you can do anything yet, but you're doing quite well. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, but I often set the bar just a little bit high, and I thought maybe for the first time I've ever fundraised, three grand is okay. Yeah, $3,000 yeah. is <laughs> quite good Yeah, of other people's money. Too. Yeah. Well done. Thank you. So I'm back with Kat and Mel from Trash Bags on tour, and they've got a little something special to tell us all about. 
Yeah, so we have our next event published now on Facebook. 25th of August on Saturday, we'll be heading out to the Yuyangs Regional Park. In that park, actually, the koala population has declined um, almost 50% in just a matter of years. And we've already been talking before with uh, Koala Kansi Foundation, um, that is basically looking after the koalas over there. Totally non-profit organization as well. And they basically organize tree planting and weeding just to create more koala habitat in the area. So we basically teamed up with them and combined um, Koala Conservation Day with a beach clean. As Mel mentioned, it will be Saturday the 25th of August. We will be departing from our usual place, the Immigration Museum, at 8am, coming back at 6pm. And we do have a, a slight cost that's involved in this particular tour. Majority of that will be going to the Koala Clancy Foundation, which, as Mel mentioned, is basically a not-for-profit. They're, all they're doing is basically trying to create a better habitat um, for the koalas so that their future can be sustained. So we've got just a, a slight cost on top of that one. So under $50, about only $10 more than what you would usually pay for the Koala Clancy Day um, to head out there. But um, the day will also include our popular talk from Madeline at Green Spectrum on zero waste and how you can get involved and decrease your footprint. And then also covering the costs of the beach clean as well but again luckily we have got some beautiful volunteers that will be driving and that will be hosting the event so really really lucky and um it is a great pair you know great partnership with koala clancy and hopefully you guys out there are interested to come on board and give back to what is a really awesome cause just check out a link to all that in the show notes and thank you very much kat and mel for putting on yet another amazing tour I think I was actually talking to Zay, who's the, one of the women who works here, mm-hmm. and uh, when you asked me uh, how do I feel being a young person in this day and age, and I was going to tell you about my existential Monday. Okay. And All right. it, it happens once a week, just like Monday. <laughs> and um, I think it's what office refer- workers as well refer to as Blue Monday. Yeah. Minus the fact that actually Monday is one of my days off, mm-hmm. so I have nothing to do. And then I get to thinking about all the problems and just how insurmountable they seem to be. And I was talking to Zay on Tuesday and I said, oh, I had this terrible day on Monday. And she said, I've just come to this place of absolute acceptance. And I was like, that sounds great. How do I get there? <laughs> and um, when you talk about being over the technology thing, I think for me, what, well, when I'm on a good day, what I realize is that we're just so fallible as humans and so scripted in the way that we think that all these beautiful technologies can exist and that doesn't mean we're capable of embracing them. I think as long as you know that about the way that humans think, then you can see that this is a really positive and it doesn't have to be under undervalued because it's as in the technology is really valuable mm-hmm. and we have to have it, but it's only going to be as useful as we can change ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, I feel really excited about that because then I know that next time I do a climate conversation, I'm going to present present this information to a whole lot of people and potentially plant a seed about a slight change in their brain. So Mm. those, those stories I still love. Gabby's story was fascinating, Mark. A great interview. Now here's a slightly different question I'd like to throw at you. 
What do you see Gabby doing in about 10 years' time? I think in 10 years, Gabby's going to be doing the right thing still. Absolutely. Like she started doing with this challenge. Mm. And as we talked about in the interview, the right thing to do, especially around sustainability and climate change, it can be really hard. It's definitely not the most convenient thing to do. It can cut us off from friends and family even sometimes. But I think Gabby's got the strength to see it through. I think in 10 years' time, she's still going to be doing just that. Agree. Totally agree. And uh, how about you, Rich? What was your favorite part? And uh, what do you see Gabby is doing? My favorite part of the interview, Mark, was the steam on the walls anecdote. Yeah, that was mine too. (laughs) I can relate to that from my bachelor days. But to me, though, it's obvious that Gabby isn't afraid to lead by example on the issues that clearly mean so very much to her. As I was listening to your interview, I thought you embodied Gandhi's Be the Change ethos, a real leader of people on sustainability issues. So I think in 10 years' time, we'll see Gabby in some sort of leadership role. Oh, no pressure there, Gabby. No, none whatsoever. So if you like listening to Gabby and indeed this style of interview, you can think of anyone whose story you'd like to hear on the show. Just tell them to check us out and get in touch. Yeah, and we're hoping to get lots more interviews with people like Gabby. Okay, now for some credits. Thank you to producer of the show and Anthony Bourdain fan, Caleb Fidicaro. Thank you so much for the blanket idea, although I appreciate it a lot more now than I will in summer. Uh, check him out yes. on Twitter <laughs> at HipsterJazzBo. And I'd like to thank Abigail Hawkins, intrepid designer. You can find her work at abigailhawkins.com and Hira. And composer and friend of the pod, Greg Grassi. Thank you so much for the great theme song, as always, Greg. In fact, I've got maybe another project in the works I could use their expertise on as well. That will be something for climactic folks, so don't worry, you'll get to hear it as well. Check him out at Chambers on SoundCloud. That's C-H-A-M-B-R-E-S. Uh, now known as uh, Greg Sydney Grassi. That's right. Mark? Or Greg Fuji, as you called him last week. <laughs> And I'd like to thank Gretchen Miller. Wonderful feedback. Thank you, Gretchen, so much. Catch her work at Prevention Works. And finally, to the guest of this show, Gabby Marr. Thank you so much for your time, Gabby, and your candor and, and real sincerity with this interview. I think at the end of it, it was quite a long session, about an hour and a half. I think we both felt we got a bit of free therapy out of the whole thing, which was great. And thank you for your patience as well at the start when I was very delayed because I was running around the Melbourne CBD looking for an SD card because I'd forgotten mine at home. Have a great week, everybody. On the next show, Rich Interviews author, academic, and president of the Bathurst Community Climate Action Network, Tracy Sorensen. Stay tuned for that one. Thanks for listening, folks. The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H E R E media.studio.